0: Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Steve Jobs, but made in China. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show.
1: Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Big Whiskey Hotel. Rest in a comfortable bed at a rate you deserve at Big Whiskey Hotel. Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers. We like to analyze process films from that perspective as people who, you know, have some experience acting and editing and doing the whole production process. Um, Actually, I'm in pre-production right now for a new short film. Um, And to me, I have to wear the producer hat and you know this about me and uh, by now most of our listeners do too. I hate producing. I hate putting on the producer hat because it's all about, for me chasing people around, waiting to get people in the room together. And so I was trying to shoot a project this month and we started originally by wanting to shoot in November, but I was going to work with our good friend Shannon cook and he was going to DP it for me. I know he's got DP aspirations. Um, but he mostly works right now as a, as a D I T, um, on set. That's kind of a, uh, they're on the camera support team. And so they, they do a lot to to help with the camera and also, you know, data wrangling, bunch of things. And so he was working on a show and he's like, can we do it in December? Great. So we pushed the shoot to December just to give us that much more prep time, give him time. And then his shoot got extended right into the middle of our shoot. And so that ended up, he was like, guys, I thank you so much. I I really want to do this. But uh, at the same time, I don't want to keep kicking y'all around because I I don't know when this is going to stop. Uh, Because now they're talking about going overseas and this and that. And third. And so he's like, I'm just going to withdraw out of respect for, you know, y'all trying to get something done here. And as a thank you for working with me, he's going to pay for the catering on the shoot, which is way above and beyond, but wow, really cool sentiment. Um, and so I was like, okay, let me reach back out to our old friend, Andrew uh, Barrera. And so I had a good meeting, but it took two weeks to get to be able to sit down with him. Um, and so now it's like, if you're trying to shoot in December, there's very limited time in December. It's not like you have the full 30 days you have up until a few days before Christmas, before people are like, eh, I'm, I'm having nog, (laughs) like, Uh and so trying to get him, but he's a busy guy. He works a lot and he's got a family. And, and so just getting a meeting with him took a couple of weeks. We could sit down, have a great conversation about both our career goals and what we're trying to do, what this project looks like, Um, and he's talking about throwing the kitchen sink at it. Like I have some budget he's talking about bringing in. I mean, he's got gear galore, like anything you could possibly want. This guy's got it. So we're going to shoot on like his Alexa 35 and probably, uh, he's got all the lenses in the world. I, I might want the, uh, he's got some cook anamorphics and so we might shoot, anamorphic, which is interesting. I've only shot anamorphic with an adapter a long time ago and that sucked. Pulling focus was a nightmare. Um, so I'm excited to work with true anamorphic lenses and, and see what that experience is like. And so I'm like, just coming out of this meeting excited. We got two dates on the, on the board. Um, I call my producer and he's like, Oh, I want to push, I'm going to push to January. And I'm like, Oh man. And so my, I went from me being stressed for weeks to feeling light to now, you know, my producer's wanting to push because he's a little concerned about the the, the turnaround, which I kind of get. But at the same time, that's how production works. A lot of times, like sometimes it's here's the date do every go like you have to just kind of, you know, I'm trying to think of a non overly masculine <laughs> way of saying, you know, you just get it done. Get it uh, done. Yeah. And and it's. The way it is, and he's used to more corporate projects and uh, having a good 68 weeks of thinking about the project, prepping um, and going in, as opposed to you and I and, and Andrew are, are all used to like the first time the three of us worked together was on threads. Um, that was the project Andrew and I co-directed. And we had that meeting where you and I went to meet with him and Scott, Garrett Graham, friend of the show, and... We're thinking we're meeting about shooting a, one music video and they say, no, we want to shoot three and we want it to be one big story that connects them all together. Uh, and we got nothing right now. Okay, great. Well, let's do it. Let's just do it. And once everybody kind of focuses and we, so you and I, and throughout our you know film career now have had to do this kind of thing a dozen times. And if you're not used to pushing those buttons and putting your head down and knowing what needs to get done and and doing it. It's probably pretty intimidating, but it's such a good exercise, especially because we already have like half the pre-pro done. And so, yeah, at this point, we're looking at January um, if we can get a firm commit from from our from our buddy, Andrew. But that's the nature of filmmaking. It's all about what resources do you have? Okay, make the best with those resources. And time is a resource. Like Ridley Scott runs into this, you know, as well. It's not just the little people. Ridley Scott went into Gladiator without a finished script and made Gladiator. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So that's not what you want to do. And we can see, in like my opinion, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is probably suffering from going into pre uh, to production before they're truly ready. Um, That's my outside, ignorant perspective. But the smaller the project is, the more feasible it becomes. And uh, it's just a really good way to get used to turnarounds because you know what? At the end of the day, it's not uncommon to walk on the set and be handed new pages for that day. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. Um, And so we as filmmakers have to be prepared and ready and know how to go through the entire film process, you know, in the blink of an eye on the fly. Um, So that you can produce your best work, um, even though ideally the best work gives you a lot of pre-production time. That's what I do with all my clients. I rarely let my clients get away with last minute changes just because I know the project will suffer. But that's also because they're the client um, and I'm not the client. If I'm the client, I'm making last minute changes because I know exactly how it's going to affect my my project. Clients do that out of ignorance. Mm -hmm. They just think they can... And so whenever you don't know what you can turn around quickly and what you can change quickly, that's a detriment. What's your experience in terms of fast turnarounds, last minute changes, and making it work and knowing what that boundary is, what that line in the sand is, don't do that because mm-hmm. now you're wrecking yourself.
0: Um, yeah. Um, if it if it changes the premise of what you're doing, it's too late. You can't can't do that. That that's the only, I think, real sticking point there for me. Like you can do a lot of things. You can change angles. you can change the camera you're using. You can change um hell, you could change the actor the night before. Like what you can change almost everything. But if you're changing the the whole meaning of it or a a premise for what you're shooting, then everything falls apart. So as long as you don't change that, then everything else can be worked around. So for example, you know, the the single video to three that um you just talked about mm-hmm um uh, that Scott and and Andrew brought up uh for threads that didn't change the premise of it it just all, honestly it just added it added to it it added complexity but the complexity was was to build out the original idea uh you know so the original idea was a middle part was the middle uh, of the second of three videos three songs and what they decided was was could we do a before and after which would build out that middle part, and we're like, yeah, that doesn't change the premise of that what we intended to do. All it does is add complexity to or depth to the character, to the story itself, to the why of people are doing what they're doing. And and I I loved that. Uh, you loved that, so that's why we did it. And it's the same with with clients. Whenever we're working with clients you know, we need to understand what we're working towards at the very beginning. If, if that's not understood, if that's understood, we can do a lot of things. We can do rewrites, we can do adjustments, we can do redesigns to things, even, you know, like, um, adjustments to the actual footage. But at the same, same time, if you're trying to change the premise that, that just can't happen. I saw a, a, an interview with Tom Holland recently too, where he, he said this interesting thing. He said, um, how he responds to script changes or, or, Because at times he won't, he either won't see script changes until he's on set that day, or he won't, he won't memorize lines. And he said, the reason is because you can actually boil, boil almost all lines down to three different actions that you're doing. And he said, he said this and I was like, oh my, it blew my mind. You're either, you're either answering a question, asking a question or telling a story. If you're answering a question or or asking a question, it's a dialogue. So you kind of like get it. It's like, you say this, I'm probably going to say something like this. Right. And then if it's a story, then you kind of have to memorize the lines or whatever. And he's on big budget films. So he's in makeup chairs for three hours. And, you know, it's just what it is. He has time. And I don't really subscribe to that. I think you should be as off book as possible. I don't Mm -hmm. think you should ever go on to set, especially if you're not at a Tom Holland level. Um, But. You should just always go to set knowing your lines, like just be off book. But that's an interesting way of of thinking about, you know, when you are filming and you need to forget that you are, have memorized lines of boiling it down to those things. And so if you do need to replace an actor or something or or whatever, like giving that kind of direction of, you know, you can you can make that work even, I guess, is my point. But if you're changing the the premise of the entire thing, then that's just too much.
1: Dude, really cool. Well said. I love the cool? the philosophical uh, approach to. It's about changing the premises. The heartbeat the same. If it is, you can survive it. You can weather it. But if uh, if it's not, everything falls apart because you've built a whole vision around executing on this thing, whatever that is. Um, and, dude, well done, man. Um, Thanks,
0: man. Nice. What uh,
1: what are we gonna take a look at today?
0: Today, we are covering Ridley Scott's new film, Napoleon. As we're recording this, it is in theaters. If you haven't seen it, please pause this episode. Go watch it. We're going to spoil stuff if you did pay attention in history. (laughs) I suppose so.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, we'll look at a a handful of things. Uh, Definitely some of the cinematography, uh, fight sequences, particularly the one towards the beginning. Uh, I'll also look into some of the story and writing. Nudity as well as look at Josephine and Napoleon, Napoleon um, and other such stuff and things and stuff.
0: And a quick synopsis of the film, the checkered rise and fall of French emperor Napoleon Bonaparte and his relentless journey to power through the prism of his addictive, volatile relationship with his wife, Josephine. It's directed by Ridley Scott, screenplay by David Scarpa, cinematography by Darius Wolski, featuring Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon and Vanessa Kirby as Josephine. I'm not built like other men. And I'm not subject to petty insecurity. You're a beast.
1: I feel sorry for you.
0: You want to be great? Hmm? You are nothing without me. You are just a brute that has nothing without me.
1: Oh, dude. So I'm I'm curious, one. What did you expect going in and what did you get? Um, are the, were they the same thing? Is this about right? Good experience, bad experience, highs and lows. What do you got, man?
0: Uh, well, let's start with the highs. The highs are Vanessa Kirby is one of my favorites. She is this movie for me. I went into it for Joaquin Phoenix and I left thanking God that Vanessa Kirby was in it. Her, her portrayal of Josephine was, was, a, a, it was fantastic. That's a great scene, a great moment where she's, you know, he's come home after she's cheated, cheated on him. And they've been, I think that's when that was right. Uh, where And they've, they're sitting there and he's talk, talking to her. They're just sitting there talking, right. And, I don't know. She just she she makes that scene and the entire movie just her brokenness for not being able to bear children and and for what she's been through to survive uh, the um, when she was incarcerated with you know thousands of other people. So yeah, she was fantastic in it. I thought that some of the fight scenes were really really cool, like the the one where they they beat the the British by running them onto the frozen lake and then shooting the cannons into the lake that was that i think was really cool because one of the one of the things that i just remember about learning about napoleon was just his brilliance on the battlefield and we get a little bit of that in that opening fight Mm -hmm. sequence where they they steal the guns and then they fire onto the ships that are (laughs) that are supposed to be protecting the ships um or they fire onto the ships that are supposed to be, the guns are supposed to be protecting with those guns. Um, and I think that's great. Um, also his brilliance of finding old metal and cannons and and smelting them down to smaller cannons so that they can lift them up the ladders. Uh, like It's really smart. And then that scene where they run all of the, the British onto the lake and then they shoot cannons onto the lake and break the ice and kill them all. And his interactions with... Not the Prussian um, uh, ruler afterwards, but the who is he? Uh, not
1: Alexander the Great, or not no. the Great, but Alexander the. Yeah, there's the the Prussian
0: guy, and then there's the Austrian guy. I think it's the Austrian guy. His interaction with him is, I lo- I enjoyed his interactions with other leaders, you know, a lot yeah. in the film. Where it fell short to me was at the very, be- I mean, starting from the very beginning, where. First off, I'm really sick of everyone having British accents. I just, I'm, I'm so, I'm so over it. You know, we're in France and there's a lot of there's supposed to be a lot of French people here. And I don't hear one French accent accent. I hear only British accents. And I get that it's it's British occupied, you know, at some points, and they're gonna hear them. That's fine. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have them, but for everyone, including French people, to have them is just really it's lazy it's absolutely lazy and and then Joaquin did no accent at all the moment he opened his mouth I thought oh this is gonna be a long movie um it felt like he phoned it in honestly Mm. it really did it is not a performance that I've ever seen from Joaquin for me that I've usually what I get from Joaquin is somebody who has developed a character into something that is like transcendent. that's otherworldly that I, where I can see the, if I choose to, I can see the work, you know, and uh, usually I don't choose to because it's so good because he's just w- one of the best actors out there today. Um, just look at, you know, all, anything that he's done, but this one, I completely felt the opposite about, I felt like, was that a, okay. Was that a direction choice Say that, say, Joaquin, we're, you're not going to, you're going to be the only one without an accent in this film. Just to let you know, which is weird, which is really weird. You're going to, you're going to have an American accent. Nobody else will, just, you know, which is weird in itself. But then nobody else had uh, similar accents. So he just stood out like a sore thumb, an American playing, you know, this this French leader. And then everybody else had British accents and it was just really, the entire time I couldn't get it out of my head. It was really bothering me a lot. And then it was really long. I just felt like, like there was so much. um, It it felt like I was reading a, um, a history book, Hmm. you know, this and then another date and this, and then another date and this, and yes, it had the, the reading of letters and stuff with, with voiceover. Hmm. And I thought that that did what it was supposed to do when he, know, he was writing to Josephine at when he first went off to battle and she wasn't writing back and it was breaking his heart. And he was like, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping with anybody? Before he found out that she was infidel about her infidelity. And I thought that that, you know, played into it and, and did a good job. But I also felt like that could have been done in a more nuanced kind of like, like um, thoughtful way. I mean, I don't want to bring in other movies, but there's another gigantic movie that was just released a few months ago along a couple of gigantic movies, but one in particular by one of our favorite directors that was also kind of a biopic, but is a different and done in a completely different way. VO, you know, like, like no dates, just, I mean, very few, but there was weight to it. There was heaviness. There was this kind of like, it wasn't a this, then this, then this, then it was, there was, there was sustenance to it. I felt like this was just a portrayal of what happened. It was like a history book and not, I didn't know who to go for. I didn't know, Mm -hmm. like, is he a good guy? Cause he'll do things like he'll hand out bread to his, to, you know, to his soldiers. And I, at that moment, I thought, Oh my God, what a, what a great leader, right? He's giving his bread to people, but then he like, gets on his horse and he rides away like it's nothing or then he'll slap Josephine when she won't sign when she's won't finish reading her divorce paper and he's a total total dick in every <laughs> single way but then he's nice and but he loves France and he wants to free France and he wants peace and it's like what are we trying to say here oh you're not trying to say anything okay well why are we telling the story like what it just felt very well you know you could go watch the uh um adaptation episode that we did. Uh, don't waste my f-ing time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I have things to do. I have a life. You know, I know you don't, you're not supposed to make films for other people. You make them for yourself. I get it. But you also have to keep in mind what you're making is a hundred million dollar film that you, you, that people need to go see. It's not like a, a record you make in your bedroom that you hope does well. Uh, but you shouldn't worry about people liking it's a no, you've got careers and stuff on the line here and you need to make something that is, you know, digestible by by people. And it just kind of pissed me off because I just felt like so much could have been done with this. Like this is a complex character. And even someone like Joaquin Phoenix, I'm just watching this thinking, where where am I going to feel like he did work? leading into this. And I just never, I just never felt it. So anyway, I'll stop there, but I'm curious what you think. Yeah. I mean, I think
1: in some ways I had the same reaction in other ways. It's for a hundred, you know, completely different reasons. I didn't feel the same way about Joaquin Phoenix's uh, performance. For me, it played, He to me, it was amazing. I thought he was great just because it played into this weird kind of comical undertone that's carried throughout the film like i went in expecting a drama a historical drama and walked away being like you know this is it's kind of a historical dramedy like there's all these fun little silly moments that are happening even if they're not like played up to be comedy uh they're clearly there to be comedy and him being this badass is never part of the equation like I don't think mm-hmm. anyone ever sees him as a badass. Uh, everyone always sees him right as like okay, you're smart, you're kind of a twit, but you're also like a a bit of a genius, and so we'll we'll deal with you until we can you know no longer use you uh as it goes with political figures i guess and so him i I did consider the accent thing, but I thought more holistically of. I don't think I heard a single French accent during that movie. Uh, it didn't really occur to me though, until after the fact I, uh, it didn't take me out at any point. And so, but I wholeheartedly uh, agree about, you know, Vanessa Kirby. Uh, I've been ever since pieces of a woman. If you, if you haven't seen that, y'all got to see that. Like it's amazing. She just delivers one of the all time great performances right up there with like Robert Shaw and jaws. Like uh, those are two performances that just, Transcend acting. I, you know, it just becomes there's a person experiencing something right now on screen. Um, and it's absolutely incredible. She's also amazing in Italian studies. Uh, yeah. And so I'm so glad. I completely agree. I'm so glad she's in this. Um, and I'm hoping this gets her to her own vehicles. Like she deserves to be carrying her own films. Um, and I don't know if America knows her well enough to be able to sell those tickets the way that studios want. Before they put her in a, you know, $75 million Vanessa Kirby movie. Uh, but hopefully this gets her one more step closer and someone will cast her in the next thing with the
0: belief that she will carry it because she will. She's yeah, unreal. She needs that. She needs that like next Nolan film. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like built around her. You know?
1: Or or like an Aronofsky film where she's Ooh. like Black Swan, right? It's her. Um, yes. She needs one of those kind of films. And then everyone's like, Did you know about Vanessa Kirby? And it's like, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. And so yeah, she is amazing. I I did walk away from it mixed, like very, you know, ambivalent. Like, I don't know that I loved it. I definitely didn't dislike it, but I and I think it might be for the reasons that you were pointing out, is like you get to the end. Um, and you don't really know what you just experienced. And, and at the same, and now this is tough for me because I don't not like that. Like I'm not someone, uh, because I go to a movie that I've never heard of and it, it could be 90 minutes of people talking and nothing getting resolved. And I'm like, that was the movie of the year. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't necessarily need those things, but, uh, yeah, that this did feel like, there's this big emotional undertone that never really gets threaded all the way and stitched in all the way. Um, And I think I wanted that. I think I wanted some big emotional revelation and maybe that's, you know, boo on me uh, for, for needing that um, out of this movie. Uh, But even with that, you know, there's still so many odd little moments I can see people say that this is like an unfinished uh, Kubrick film. And I can totally see that. Like if you've seen Barry Lyndon, um, then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is his version, Ridley Scott's version of Barry Lyndon or inversely, you know, Barry Lyndon was his real Napoleon uh, Kubrick's. And so I don't know. I Watching this, I 100% did not expect to be laughing, you know, at some of these jokes. Some of them are really base humor that normally don't work on me, but it just worked. Like uh towards the end they're walking through the ship and he says, Watch your head.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> like, he like
1: immediately bangs his head. Like, yeah. That's such a dumb joke, but it's so well executed that I just I laughed the second time. I watched this twice. Laughed the first time, laughed maybe a little harder the second time. <laughs> <laughs> and it just worked. Um yeah, I I enjoyed the uh the kind of the character study aspect of it like a really good character study is putting a a character through a number of situations to see how they respond and react and handle, you know, any given thing. And, and in totality, it adds up to this is who this person is like Rocky is a character study of a movie. It's not a boxing movie, right? It's a character study. Um, And this in the same way, I see this as a, a bit of a character. It doesn't go quite as far as other character studies go, but I think it's, it works really well as a character study. And so we're seeing how he's react- reacting, right. When he's given a hard truth, um, your, your wife is having an affair. Ha ha ha. You're lying. No, no. Your wife is having an affair. Well, you may not have dessert. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. just like he's over here acting like he can handle anything. He's a man's man, but he's a petty child. He's petulant, um, constantly throughout the, the movie. Right. And even when, be, when he's first meeting Josephine, she tells him pretty straight up, do I need to warn you about my indiscretions? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, of course not. What do you mean? Um, and then, of course, uh, she goes and has an affair. And he's abandons his post <laughs> to go confront her about cheating. Like, one, she gave you a heads up. You're acting really shocked right now. But even worse, he's a hypocrite because he's cheating, too. And so now he's carrying this double standard typical 1700s dude. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't want to put them all in a box or anything. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> they belong in a fucking box.
1: <laughs> well, they are now. They are now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good point. And so, yeah. And then at the same time, he never re- uh, accepts any responsibility for any of his actions. No. Right. We get to the end of the film after he's screwed up countless times or maybe not countless but certainly a handful at, at least and what he's over here preaching to these kids um he's like you know i'm the first to accept blame for a mistake if i make one but i never do because i know everything and it's just like eye rolling um and part of it is these kids are they're standing around they're kind of blank faced and so i'm over here imbuing them with my own thoughts of like yeah they're 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 kind of interested just because it's napoleon but they're also like what, what is this guy on about? You're in our Mm -hmm. ship. (laughs) Like, yeah, you are a person Something went wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) he's like the hardest thing is going to be able to accept that other people uh, fail. That's the hardest thing about leadership. And it's like, Oh, accepting other people's failures. Got it. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, as a character study, it's, it's pretty fascinating to see all these wrinkles of what up until this point, I've always in my head had as a a really respectable and powerful figure. And to see him kind of taken down a notch is really funny to me um, and interesting, but at the same time, to your point, like maybe to get there two and a half hours plus, isn't the way to do that Uh, just in terms of picking a better runtime. If you're going to have less uh, to say about the, the story you're, you're making, I don't know. This is, really fun backseat driving of one of the greatest directors of all time. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's where we are. Okay. Accept it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I just feel like, I feel like, um, I mean, if, if, uh, Vanessa Kirby, or let's just say if Josephine, mm. even if it wasn't Vanessa Kirby, if she didn't play as big a role, it would have been a complete wash Yeah, for me. I mean, not complete. Cause Joaquin Phoenix is, is good. I, I just, you know, I would have liked to have seen, for this movie to have been called Napoleon to get people in, into the the doors, but for it to be about Josephine. Oh man. That would have been, I would have liked to watch every time she was on screen and I saw something that she was doing or a sense, something she was thinking or, or whatever I was like in it. And it's not because she's pretty. It's because her story to me was more interesting. And maybe it's because I'm not, a military guy or I'm not a um, a war type of person. I'm a survivalist type of person and it doesn't feel ever like Napoleon was just surviving. It felt like he was trying just conquering right and in the name the faux name of peace, whatever you want to call it, but millions of people died. So how peaceful is that like not at all. So everything about Napoleon I couldn't identify with and that maybe that's the point. You know, so they did a good job there, but her story felt super interesting to me. It would have been nice to have seen a two-hour film about her.
1: That's a really good point. Like, first, completely agree. Vanessa Kirby is very hard on the eyes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But but quote you on that. (laughs) Don't you ever (laughs) put put it in quotes? uh, Double quotes. quotes,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: But more to the point, I. I hadn't thought about it until you just pointed it out that you're absolutely right. We don't really get to know enough about Josephine. Everything we know about her is through the eyes of Napoleon. Whereas a film that was about Josephine and we see Napoleon through her eyes would probably be a much more fascinating story to get to know her and why she's in the position she's in and flesh out why she's with him in the first place. She's clearly not that crazy about him. And then, Maybe towards the end of the film, she finally, you know, feels something. The first time I feel like she actually loves him is when she's on her deathbed, like Mm -hmm. when she's really sick and she's stressed out about, well, Napoleon's coming. That's the first time I feel like I've seen actual emotional investment into him just as someone that she cares about and not just as like a provider or a, a great societal figure um or a, a, a chess piece so to speak of we're we're here to play a game between each other maybe that was a, a fun aspect to you know to to wrestle with a great man and uh, to prove her worth um, as an equal because napoleon I, I read a quote earlier that he said something along the lines of women are birth machines and nothing more something to that effect i'm like damn, bro. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. uh good, good job. <laughs> like, I mean, b- you know, the it, eight,
0: early 1800s, late 1700s, people were awful, rough, Maybe even more but, so than now.
1: But clearly he saw her as more than that because yeah. of how much, uh, he invested in her, uh, mentally. And so I don't know. I think you're right. Seeing it all from her perspective, spending more time with her probably would have been, much more engaging and also helps smooth out the timeline like she has those kids before she meets him and i would have been interested to see kind of more of those circumstances of she talks about it and we get some of that exposition of i was told when my husband went to prison that the only way to survive would it be to have kids or something to that effect um and so she had kids as a means of survival not because they were loved children and maybe to some thematic element that's why she in this story uh, why she and Napoleon weren't able to conceive together is because now that she really wanted his child, she wasn't able to. And she operated out of this place of survival um, instead of a place of like love and conquering. I don't know. It's a harsh world, especially then for women, I'm sure. Um, Well,
0: that clip that you played is probably the strongest moment of her as a character that we uh, like verbally Mm -hmm. hear from her. Like, he 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 right before that he tells her that she's nothing without him and then she comes back and says the same thing directly to him because it's the truth and she knows it and she knows she has him because he loves her but that's really that's really it and to your point about the kids i really don't sense them anywhere maybe they're in the shots you know, sometimes when they're at dinner or something, I don't know, but I don't really sense them anywhere until the very end after she dies. And he's sitting there talking to this woman. I don't know who she is. Oh, that's her daughter. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did not know that. Um, uh, So I felt very just like not grounded with... Mm. That's you know, true. Yeah.
1: And that scene that we, we played is, I think, very to the point about this story and why it structured the way it is. And that's because Josephine... Is Napoleon's strength. Mm-hmm. And so the whole film seems to directly tie Napoleon's success to his relationship with just Josephine, right? Without me, you are nothing. And so if we keep that in mind while the sequence of events unfolds, right, he marries her and then rises to power, divorces her, and loses his empire, gets exiled. Yeah. And he tries to reclaim it all, her and his empire. But then before he can get to her, right, she dies. And therefore he loses whatever Waterloo um, or, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And, and also goes into permanent exile where he finally dies. So they're, they're linking very tightly uh, his success with the running the country, as well as his success with his, his marriage um, and with Josephine. And so, and i and I suspect there's a lot of other, metaphorical things at play between the way we're watching events unfold with him and with her, uh, that it wouldn't be surprising to learn more about French history. And um, she's cheating on him, maybe ties to some other aspect of France back dealing, you know, on him or something like that. That wouldn't be, be very surprising, but I just don't know, you know, much history, let alone, you know, Napoleon French history. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, I can imagine it's a, uh, a history buff, you know, is seeing a thousand things that you and I just aren't going to see, uh, because we're like Napoleon's that guy from Bill and Ted, right? <laughs> like,
0: <he's- laughs> yeah, we should. I mean, it would have been cooler if this movie wasn't called Napoleon. It's like, had a mm-hmm. title, you know, and so it wasn't a biopic, and it was about her being the strength behind napoleon so we see napoleon every now and then so but but what so this movie is about vanessa kirby (laughs) she's it's her thing and she's playing josephine it's about josephine and napoleon comes in and out so joaquin is like a supporting role almost so we don't get a whole lot of we get like glimpses of him which is makes me want to know more about him to not be given all of this mm. information. And the movie isn't called Napoleon if it's called something else, you know, like the, the whatever. That would have been more interesting to me in the end. Like, you know, going into it, I was like, oh, biopic about Napoleon by Ridley Scott? Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> but that would have, now that I've seen it, that would have been, I feel like that would have been a better way to play it. And- What do I know? Not Yeah,
1: baby. no, I- I think there's something there. And I also love that after she goes, it's like he's trying to reestablish his relationship with her through the military. So Mm -hmm. like there's this weird little comment that he makes whenever he's about to get opened up on by the fifth regiment. Right. He approaches and just kind of opens his jacket up. Like you can kill me if you want. I'm just here to talk. And the first thing that he tells them is I miss you. And it's like, he's talking to a lover Um, and I don't feel like he's talking to the fifth regiment. I feel like they're this embodiment of Josephine. And so great point. There's an interesting dynamic that's happening between Josephine and France and the military. It it all feels a little tied together because ultimately she is his source of strength and inspiration. And without her, he is indeed nothing. Um, and I think that's just played out very cleanly through the film.
0: Um, great point. I didn't even think about that that's a great point
1: it's pretty cool um the last little comment i have on the story in writing is about the nudity specifically the non-nudity right that's happening in the film i just find it to be an interesting use of non-nude sex scenes because i can imagine there's another version of this story that has lots of nudity Like maybe at the start uh, that you use nudity to show the passion and create a strong sense of intimacy between Napoleon and, and Josephine. Right. And then later on as the relationship uh, ebbs and flows, you could also use nudity to show a level of mundanity, you know, with their relationship or a lack of passion by making it more casual and less erotic. Uh, And so there's a way to use nudity to do all those things, but here it feels really appropriate because there's almost this, comical element to their sex right he's just pounding away from behind right and finishes and that's that uh and it's just it looks kind of ridiculous um and very unromantic but it also i think it also reflects how little he actually knows her right and her clothing to me perhaps is a metaphor for how unexposed and opaque she really is to him he simply doesn't know her and he's and, and she's hiding who she really is. And it's reflected in keeping her covered up during most, uh, the most intimate part of a relationship, the sex. Right. And so I, I think it's a really smart use of, uh, of, of clothing and, and, a, at a point where it, it might not be obvious to keep everyone clothed. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so in a number of ways, it adds to the story that they're telling the comedy and, and maybe as a metaphor for, yeah, the relationship.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, th- I think that the, um, uh, you know, we're used to stuff like, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever, like in, in time period pieces like this, where you just like throw a boob here and a boob there and everything, mm-hmm. but to be sparing about it really tells their lack of relationship, yeah. lack of intimacy. Yeah. Great, great point there.
1: Uh, my last little uh, two cents here is about cinematography. Ridley Scott loves the widescreen, right? This is a two, three, nine, but what's interesting about his use of widescreen is he doesn't in this, at least I, this is spherical. It's not anamorphic. And so I, what does
0: that, what does that mean?
1: Can you So spherical lenses are exactly what I'm describing. They're very round and anamorphic lenses are more square. And so they're, they're trying to squeeze more on the uh, sides of the frame in. And what that ends up doing is through that process of squeezing the image down and then de-squeezing it in post or through the projection process. Uh, adds a lot of interesting character elements to the, the, the image itself. So like whenever you pull focus, everything looks fine, but things that are out of focus tend to get stretched in really interesting ways at the same time it adds other kinds of complexities to your project. And like I said, at the beginning, I've never shot true anamorphic. And so I don't really know what that experience is like. I'll certainly tell you later, I guess, but uh, just from stuff I've read, pulling focus can be a little bit trickier whenever you're, you know, shooting anamorphic, just, I guess it also depends on how you like to pull focus. I assume, you know, these guys are probably still measuring like this is a, a pretty high end production and it, uh, there's a lot of ways you can do it. You can use measuring tape. Like I shoot film when I shoot film, do not pull focus by eye. You want to measure that. And the way you do that, of course, is, you know, you have a, a measuring tape that hooks into the side of the, uh, the lens, the camera. Um, and then you can measure exactly where the focal plane, uh, at the back of the lens is versus where the subject's eye is. Normally you want to pull focus to someone's eye. That's what we as people are trying to look at when we're watching a, a person. We want to look them in the eye. Even if your eye wanders around, the eye is what ultimately you're going to fall back on. And so getting a, a good accurate measurement. Another thing that's become popular in recent years is the Light Ranger. And that's a really interesting device that you slap on top of the camera. And so that becomes a much easier way to gauge distance and pulling focus. And it's a really nice overlay basically that's happening, um, for the focus puller to be able to look at, you know, the image and see where critical focus is. And, uh, so whenever you watch a film like uncut gems, that uh, was the first one that really brought this to my attention because they are chaos. All of those sh- scenes and shots and uncut gems is just chaos and they never lose focus. Uh, like that just blew my mind. And I was like, what is going on here? did they rehearse this a thousand times? Nope. They, they had a little device that the, the focus puller got really good at. Um, and it just helped him maintain and predict when he was going to lose focus and how to bring it back. And so I don't know what they did on this. It, it felt like the kind of film where you're just breaking out the measuring tape and maybe as a safety, you're using a light Ranger. Light Ranger two, I think is the, the, the the hip new thing. But regardless, like I I've heard pulling anamorphic can do a lot of, uh, mean a lot of difficult things for you know production design and uh and pulling focus i don 't know maybe maybe not but mm. i I just find it interesting that he chooses not to shoot anamorphically and instead maybe what he 's doing is cropping uh in post and what that could also mean is if you 're shooting anamorphic you 're probably like opening up the 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 full full height of the sensor. Uh, And so kind of what you see is what you get, um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to if you're, if you're shooting spherically and then cropping in post, you might have a little wiggle wiggle room so that if you didn't quite like the framing, you might be able to pull it up or down a little, uh, to, to adjust your composition, just a hair. Um, and that makes it a lot easier if using, if you're cropping in post, the other thing that was interesting as far as the cinematography and, and, you know, I, it's really low contrast, like it has this washed yeah. look, um, which isn't super sexy to me. I'm assuming they probably were referencing some old paintings and using that as their look, because um, this isn't yeah. a very common look for Rid- Ridley Scott. And what I do love about Ridley Scott is most of his films don't look the exact same. He's always thinking about the story mm-hmm. and how he can best tell the story through framing, composition, color palette, production design, as well as just the uh, the grade itself. And so he's not just copy pasting from one film to the next and saying, this is my look. No, he's like, yeah. what does the story need to be? Um, and how can we visualize that in a in a true and honest way? And I think my impression is he was looking at one of these old original paintings of Napoleon on the horse that has this really low contrast. It feels like watching this film, The the highlights feel really pulled down in the grade. And there is some, you know, he is pushing the blacks, uh, the the shadows quite a bit, you know, in a lot of the scenes. But uh, because of how far down it looks to me, again, I haven't pulled this into like a, a DaVinci Resolve or anything. But to me, it looks like the the whites are pulled down on the IRE, you know, a fair amount. Um, whereas maybe you might let highlights live in like the 90 to 95 higher end range. It, it might be like much, much lower than that. Um, uh, maybe like that's, 85 or something. I don't know. Um,
0: that's interesting. That's, Cause he does have a reference in the film to his painting when he's talking to that kid, when the kid comes in asking for the sword, I, I guess her daughter, her son comes in asking for the sword. And he, I think that's what the scene. And then he says, do I look like my painting? Is that oh. that scene? There's some scene where he references, he asks the person, I think it was the kid. Oh, if he no, looks the girl. Like, he asks the, his new wife, she
1: shows up. And he's like That's who it is. Do I look like my I knew it was some child. <laughs> so from from other <laughs> I knew it I was a child. He's my friend. He's a little slow. Yeah, uh- <laughs> <laughs>
0: that, was,
1: that was a little delayed. That was a good yeah.
0: five seconds. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I assumed whenever he said that that what he was talking about, I've heard through other films and and of this kind. I've seen that what they'll do whenever they're matchmaking is uh, do a painting of someone. Oh, we see this in the great on Hulu is that instead of they can't send a picture across the sea to be like, hey, do you like them? And so they'll, they'll get an artist to come and paint a portrait. And then they'll send that to the suitor and say, oh, uh, this is what she looks like. Here's a Polaroid of, of mm-hmm. the, the, your your betrothed. Do you like it? Uh, and so I assumed it was that. But I think what you're saying would make a lot more sense of like she she
0: saw, uh, you know, one of his famous paintings or something. Um, oh, uh, I, I just meant because like you think that, that like Ridley was probably uh, like modeling his color after like paintings. And then but they reference he references the painting of him inserting it in there
1: maybe so yeah yeah. but that was my kind of assumption is he was referencing some ancient artwork but regardless one thing i he often does like is like far key lighting and big ambient lighting setups through windows and then probably fine-tune adjusting so that he can once he's set up they can shoot 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 this is what i've i've read about him I, i don't know probably through like asc mag at some point but he's he From what I've read, he likes to shoot very quickly once they're going, which for me is really encouraging because I like shooting fast uh, once we get going. And and so to do that, I've read that he likes basically walking into a room and taking away light and saying, okay, let's let's strip everything down. Okay, what are we working with now? Okay, turn that on, turn that on. Okay, now this is what we got, and it's minimalistic but gives me the look that I want. And is easier to maneuver around. we can get going very, very quickly. That's what I've read. I, if so, that's
0: really cool. I w- just to add to that, I will say that the co- the, the the lighting looked really great in this movie yeah. A- and it felt very practical too like the one specifically the one scene where he his mom, which is so awkward and weird. his mom sends him in to like test his his ability to have children with this this woman. and the only light in that whole room is three candles. At least that's what it feels like. And mm-hmm. he blows them out one by one. And it felt very real. Like that was the light that they used. Um, and maybe yeah. so
1: what you can do in those circumstances and maybe not like it's often a lot of that stuff is just coordinated right with uh, your your team so that as he blows out a candle, you kill a light and, you, and it's just coordinated. But another thing you can do and they might have done this and, and it's hard to tell. I'd have to go back and look to see if uh, how how blowing out some of those highlights are on the candle but you can use what's called a triple wick and it's a candle with three wicks to triple the brightness uh that a candle puts out and so if you like three triple wicks side by side and then you're shooting on and this is shot on a uh an re mini lf then you can probably and those are really good at highlight retention and uh, they get really clean noise in the shadows and so you can shoot You know, pretty well in those in those kind of scenarios. So it wouldn't surprise me if you know they actually just used candles, um, with really big wicks. uh, Cool. Or not. It also wouldn't surprise me that you know they they took the time to coordinate. It just yeah
0: felt practical. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead.
1: Anyway, my my last little thing that I thought was interesting was the first fight sequence where they take the port and fire on the ships. I love that whole sequence this is just great directing to me in a number of ways. For one, we really let the fighting breathe just quietly without overriding the scene. I can imagine another, you know, writer or director coming in and just like, let's announce everything that's happening. You get to there and you get to there. And once it's all kind of underway, we're just letting it happen until he finally is like, okay, let's uh, let's fire on the ships or whatever. There's like, one line of dialogue in that whole sequence. Um, And it's towards the end. Um, And it's just so good um, to let it just visually tell the story, not get in the rush, let this moment play out. And you can feel the momentum building. And so it's a great sequence of just building it through visuals. So this comes down to uh, like great storyboarding of knowing exactly what you want, how you're going to tell this, right? Because you have a strong sense of geography, throughout the sequence, mm. right? Of who's doing what. And so as an audience member, I never feel lost or disoriented yet. It still feels very visually interesting. It's not just a simple, like, okay, if all else fails, we're going to cut to this huge wide master shot so that we can reorient the audience. We never do that. Instead it's lots of coverage and jumping around the space in this really tricky stuff, but Ridley Scott is a master of, uh, storyboarding. That's how he thinks he thinks in storyboards because he has a background. Like he went to school in like the fifties and sixties or something for graphic design. And so he's an artist and he worked all the way up until like 39 or 40. He hadn't made a movie yet. Right. And so he, he worked in commercials and so he got really good at visually communicating his ideas. And of course, famously, he made the, uh, the Apple, uh, that was his other big Apple, uh, cause this was made by Apple studios. Like they financed this thing. And so of course, one of the things that really he put made the Apple, Apple logo. No, uh, he may, he, he but, originally oh, the commercial, uh, yeah, yeah. 1984 commercial back way back when, uh, was like a gotcha. huge calling card for Ridley Scott at the time. Um, and they played it once during the Super Bowl and no one ever forgot it, right? Uh, that's a pretty badass ad to play it one time and have people talking about it 40 years later. Wow. Yeah. But anyway, he's he's got a background in commercials. And so he thinks in storyboards. And I've, I've heard that his collaborators call him Ridley Grams um, because he just kind of sketches out like an idea. Here's what I'm trying to do. And he'll storyboard everything himself. And so he knows in his head exactly what he's trying to do. And he knows exactly how to communicate it to his team so that everyone is always on the same page. Um, And it just becomes a very easy way for him to get what's in his head onto, you know, the celluloid or the, uh, the the digital sensor. And I wish I could storyboard. I cannot, like I, I can shot list. That's the way I personally work is I shot list and I see it very clearly in my head. I just, I, I can't draw for crap. And so, um, and until I can find a, a cheap way to storyboard that, there's, oh man, I got really encouraged for like 10 minutes the other day where I was like, oh, there's AI storyboarding software tools. Okay, well, I'm going to go in there and mm-hmm. finally I can just find a way to type out the right command and they'll be able to generate and it sucks. Like they're they're all terrible. Um, Like if mm-hmm. it isn't some other preconceived idea, you can't really get it through. Yeah, so he is an absolute visual genius. Um, And what's really cool about Ridley Scott is Not only is he that, but he also has a really strong sense of story, um, and he takes risks. Like, this isn't the kind of story you would expect to see a lot of other A-list, you know, pop culture icons taking on. How many of these do, do you see from Spielberg? Like, not a lot. Like, he loves a good Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, Ready Player One. Like, but for every 10 of those, you might get a Schindler's List or a Munich um, and so, seeing Ridley Scott still taking some of these sh- swings is is pretty cool. Like, I I do hope to see another The Martian from him or a Gladiator, but uh, mm-hmm. if not, well, technically, I guess they are doing another Gladiator, but yeah, next year, next. Oh, it's coming out next year, or they're shooting it next year.
0: No, they're they're almost done. I think shooting it. I, I just recently saw. Wow. Yeah. And oh, uh, I think Denzel's in it. Oh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I really have high hopes for it. Yeah. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, so this I know. reveals exactly how much I keep up to date on what's actually being made. I, <laughs> it's the equivalent of us. Weekly. I'm super interested. Just, yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm super interested. I'm like, OK, OK, usually because I'm not like super excited about what's going on now. I'm like, And I'm trying to think, OK, what can I look forward to yeah. oh, Gladiator 2? What the heck is that going to be about? Like what? OK. Oh man.
1: Yeah. So that's all I got. Uh, I think, yeah, this is, it's a great visual film and it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just glad we still have Ridley Scott 40 year, 40 plus, you know, 45 years on still putting out films. He just loves making movies and that's so cool. That's so cool for me as an inspiration just because, you know, I'm 43 now and i haven't made my first movie yet and so to to know that it's not over like there is no expiration date mm-hmm. on passion and anytime you get going there's still a whole world of of creating and and uh, left to do you, whatever you want to do don't don't think it's over just because you haven't done it yet uh, and R- and Ridley Scott just proves that yeah. every time he puts out another movie, it's so cool.
0: I totally agree, and 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 he's the kind of he's the kind of director or kind of filmmaker that is very supportive of you just of people just making stuff. I mean, he's he's quoted constantly in in um, interviews. Just what you know? What's your best advice to new filmmakers? Just make something. Just go make your movie. Go do it. Doesn't matter what you've got. Just go do it. Like, that's how you get better. And I, you know, really uh, appreciate and respect filmmakers that have $50 million budgets. You know, just saying, you all see all of this that I have, I could do it without any of it. Uh, You just give me a camera and I'll figure out a way to make a movie. You know, like, yes, it's great to have $50 million, but it's not about the $50 million. It's about the story. And he's one of those directors that does that. And, you know he has iconic films that he's not afraid to go in and make a make a second one of you know gladiator two you know 30 years later whatever it is 20 years later he's not afraid to go do that because it's his story he owns it man it was him and so he's so if he decides that he wants to do that yeah i love making movies i'm gonna go do it hopefully it turns out good but if i don't do it you know, then, then I have this story in my head that I can't, you know, say that I, that I tried. He's not afraid. I think that that's fantastic.
1: It's a frightening yeah. thing, Bilbo to step outside your front door. <laughs> you never know yes, where you'll, you'll end exactly.
0: up. <laughs> Dude. Uh, final thoughts, man. Um, wasn't, wasn't my favorite really Scott film, uh, to say the least. Uh, but there were some really bright moments, uh, and I, I did enjoy it. Um, But I'm looking forward to his next effort, I will say. Nice.
1: Well said. Cool. What are you going to recommend this week?
0: This week, I'll recommend... I can't believe we haven't recommended it before, honestly. uh, But another war film, Fury. I wanted to uh, recommend Band of Brothers, but... You've already recommended it a long time ago, um, and I'm I'm only uh, through a few episodes, and it's fantastic. You were right. You're like, <laughs> yeah, been you told me a long time ago I years. needed to watch it, and then I asked you the other night. I said I need something to watch. You're like Band of Brothers. I said okay, all right, I'll dive in. It's it's un- unbelievable. Um, wow. But I'm I'm gonna recommend Fury, dude. Great recommendation. Like we should cover that at some point. Um, we should. We should.
1: I could do a. I mean, I I know I kind of rail on World War II movies here and there about we put out 50 a year and we do, um, but I still love them. I still, I'm going to watch them all on yeah uh, They're the best. That yeah. um, was well, the re- last Great War, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. That was our last shining moment. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to recommend, if you haven't seen it, Barry Lyndon. Like, it's very similar. If you love Napoleon, then you'll love Barry Lyndon um, there. I find them to be incredible parallels um, in terms of tone and content. Uh, yeah. I. It's interesting what I think Barry Lyndon it's big calling card was Kubrick wanted to shoot it with all available lighting. So like he, some of those scenes interior at night are lit with candles, which whenever this was made in like the seventies uh, is incredibly impressive. I think he had some, like wild lens from NASA that he borrowed that had like a 0.95 or a 1.0 uh aperture just kind of really wild stuff yeah and so Barry Lyndon by Stanley Kubrick check it out and I wouldn't again I'm recommending it if you like Napoleon if you hated Napoleon do not watch Barry Lyndon like uh (laughs) you're gonna feel the exact same way about that one as you do about this one. So uh, do it because it's a well-known historical film. Do it because you love Napoleon. Don't do it because you want a really great movie. That's going to wow you. I I don't know that that's that one for you. Anyway, stay tuned for next week. We're going to see what Nick Cage has got going on um, in his new film, dream scenario. Yeah. I guess we haven't had enough between adaptation and this Uh, it's, it's, it's Nick Cage, year <laughs> i guess so yeah uh yeah if you're enjoying the show don't forget subscribe drop us a review yeah i'm excited we have we have some pretty fun stuff uh coming up we we had a really amazing email uh come through from someone who works in the industry and so we're hoping to have him on uh and we'll announce that as things get going but he's worked on films that we've covered and so it'll be really exciting um uh to, to To have one. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to comment on this episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com
0: slash Napoleon. But you got to type it like that. Napoleon. Napoleon. (laughs) Um, All right. And our quote of the day is from Sun Tzu from The Art of War. There is no instance of a nation benefiting from prolonged warfare. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But there's. Yeah. Uh, Couldn't agree more.
1: I, I think it's
0: really funny that, you
1: know, Napoleon seemed to be chafed at someone reading, uh, Sun Tzu. Um, he was like, he's, he's busy reading, the, reading the art of war. Like I don't need to read it. Like I write my, mm-hmm. he has this kind of arrogance to him where it's like, yeah, maybe you could, maybe you should read it. Like if he hadn't, and if he isn't actually just cribbing, you know, from art of war and claiming it as his own, which might've been the case, um, or not, but, that's one little sentence that may have slipped by him. Like maybe stop going to war so much and you will have your country like whole. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Again, I don't know France's history well enough to know that he actually needed to do all these things that he was doing. It didn't feel necessary to go to Egypt and bomb the pyramids, but who knows? Maybe that was, the big measuring contest of the day that God, sure that hurt piece. my heart when I saw that Dude, what the F you know, the
0: I, up- I did find it interesting that the Sphinx if you noticed was half half underground oh, because that was only uh, that was only under uncovered like I think in the 20th century early 20th century yeah it was like Whoa. kind of recent like within the last hundred years where it was the full Sphinx was uncovered they used to think it was just the head and in the shot you see him standing there looking at the head you don't see the feet anywhere it's like still under the sand
1: I didn't pick up on that dude that's cool yeah
0: yeah I was like oh
1: okay that's cool that's accurate the other parts because yeah I felt the same I was like oh don't do that Um, the other things that made me kind of oof was (laughs) it was again, this is that weird sense of humor um, was the botched suicide where the guy Oh my God. Misfires and then tries to kill himself and fails. And the guy just picks at him. Like everything about that was so gross and kind of funny. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The, the other thing that was not funny, that was like just gross was when they fire on the protesters um, and like just waylay everyone. And uh, in the first, like 10 rows of that, just, Gross, and the woman, and I was like, "Oh God!" But they did a great job, I think, at the beginning of the film, establishing right off the bat, right with the the beheading, that this is going to be that kind of film. Yeah, and so they set the expectations early, which is what you want if you have a niche film uh, that isn't just a straight up PG thirteen. So kudos to them for that. But yeah, anyway, Napoleon could have used probably a little bit more uh, uh, peace than war, and maybe we wouldn't be talking about him getting exiled we'd be talking about the reign and dynasty of uh the bonapartes
0: yeah great point mm-hmm. well said uh, i think that's a good way to end it thank you guys so much for joining us as wes said please subscribe review us wherever you get your podcast share us with a friend uh we'd love to hear what you think uh, about uh, uh what we think and if there's another film that you'd like to hear us uh pick apart uh let us know maybe we'll cover it one day until next time i'm todd i'm wes Go watch some movies.